Welcome to Vino Week, episode 20, brought to you by Vino 101. All right, welcome to Vino Week. I'm Bill. Hello, everybody. It's Al. I'm glad you guys are back with us. And uh, we got a lot to talk about, Bill. We do. It was a, um, there's always good stuff to talk about in the world of wine. But it never amazes me all the stuff that keeps popping up. True. Hey, um, I, real quick, I've got a little, um, I wanted to give a, a shout out to the folks at uh, IWA Wine. It's a company, uh, let's see if I have their stuff. I do, I do a little business with them, but I bought my, I bought my Cellar Pro uh, wine cooling unit from them a little over a year ago. Been real happy with this. Done a great job. I get a call from my wife Tuesday morning, and I'm in uh, San Francisco, and she says, uh, "You know your your wine cellar it's beeping." <laughs> like what? <laughs> that doesn't sound good. <laughs> she says it's beeping. So, uh, oh boy. So I I get back later in the day, and sure enough, it's uh, it's beeping, and uh, it's gone kaput and. Make a long story short, it's not working. And uh, actually, it caused for some pretty anxious moments. But I was really fortunate that uh, we had a cool period of weather when it went down. Yeah, I was going to say you're anxious because our weather here has been pretty warm. Yeah, so I mean, it was it was a it was a little cooler than it had been, and and it's in it's in a pretty good spot where the room actually doesn't get that hot to begin with. But uh, anyway. Um, they were uh, really good. Uh, they got me uh, – the turnaround was five business days, and they got me another unit, and it's working fabulously. So um, if you're looking for a wine cooling unit or if you're looking for accessories, go to IWA. Cool. cool. What do we got, Bill? Uh, well, it's, a un, it's an unsolicited ad. <laughs> no. Exactly. IWA. How, how's that for native advertising? And we should have woven it in with some, uh, like, wine accessory talk. Um, exactly. But we're being a little bit more overt. But, no, I mean, look, I mean, people who give customer service deserve a shout-out these days. Yeah, they, they, do a, they do a pretty good job there. Actually, if you ever – if you're in Pet, – they're in Petaluma. If you're in wine country, it's worth it to go and check out their showroom if you're looking for a seller because they build – they build private sellers, and they, then they have um, all kinds of units. So it's like a – if you're into that type of thing, you know, you're in a candy store with all the accessories. It's pretty cool. Right on. Well, well uh, sad news this week. Yeah. So yeah. a true uh, – one. Well, as, as was a, the article that I – that you had sent me and that we had posted, at least one of them, was from uh, a, a blog that's affiliated with the San Francisco Chronicle, I think called Eater, SF Eater, and as the article pointed out, you know, uh, Paul Perdome is who we're talking about, popularized and at least put on the map probably globally, Cajun Creole cuisine, um, and one of the, along with Wolfgang Puck, was were two of the original celebrity chefs as we know them today. They were the pioneers, and I remember watching um, um, Paul Perdome on like NPR, yeah, you know, back in the the eighties or the nineties, a, a, a strong history of you know sort of uh, legends in the restaurant business. You know, the Brennans. If you've ever been to 
to New Orleans, you know, go to Commander's Palace or Brennan's Restaurant, you know, Perdome, both Perdome and Emerald Lagasse, you know, were the helms that they're at Commander's Palace, which is the Brennan's, you know, the Brennan's Restaurant Empire's uh, flagship restaurant. Uh, Paul Perdome went on to, you know, do a whole host of things, right? Most famously, uh, from a restaurant standpoint, was K. Paul's Kitchen. And then, you know, a whole line of, uh, you know, cooking uh, accessories and spices, but really, you know, blackened, you know, um, blackened fish of any type, but it was really, you know, sort of uh, redfish is what he, you know, made it uh, famous for. And then just, you know, all of this sort of, uh, you know, Creole classic food that uh, people have heard of that, you know, etouffee, um, you know, crawfish, uh, it, it goes on. I guess the other thing he's really famous for is he, he, was, he was the guy that created the traducan. Yes, I was wondering if you're going to bring that oh, up. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, how can you not, right? I mean, and what's funny is people don't know that that's. I I remember talking to somebody like ten years ago about ah, I heard this like brand new thing, traducan. I'm like ah, that's actually not new. <laughs> not new. <laughs> you at ever all. heard of this guy named Paul Prudhomme? But anyway, I I ha- actually had this. So this is a nice personal anecdote for me. For me. I, I spent time in Louisiana. I was in the, the military and was stationed in Louisiana and used to go to New Orleans. And in the 80s, in the late 80s, I actually went to K-Paul and ate in K-Paul's kitchen. I ate in that restaurant. Um, and I remember eating. He had a shrimp and um, grits dish that we ate. Oh, and, and which hey, was good. Yeah. I mean, it was, you know, it, it was wrong, right? And, yes. and, um, and I think we had... We either had an etouffee or we, and we definitely had a blackened fish there. Um, the people, I remember it. I remember it because I remember trying to make that stuff. Um, and then, you know, being able to go to that restaurant was pretty special. And, you know, I didn't have a lot of money back in the day. So that was like, you know, that was my spending money for like a month and a half. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but it was awesome. That's one of my favorite dishes. Um, I'm just a, you know, if I go somewhere, I would, I definitely have that as an appetizer. If I'm going there, if I'm going to Commanders, you know, any of those restaurants in the Garden District, I mean, that's a signature dish that this shrimp and grits and the way they do it, you know, I'm not, I, I'm, I'm always trying to figure out how they do it because, you know, the, the shrimp part, not such a big deal with the spices, but the, the key is to get the grits, the right consistency and the right creaminess. And it's and man, that that's it's easier said than done. Yeah. It's, I cheat and the way I do it is I cook them for an extended time, but I cut it with a little parmesan and it gives it that it gives it the texture I'm looking for, but I've never been able to figure out how they do it. Yeah. Yeah. I had I had a uh, probably about five years ago at Bobby Flay's restaurant um in downtown manhattan and midtown i can't remember i want to say it was bar american but i don't think it's that's right they did a shrimp and grits as an appetizer that i had with and man it same sort of thing right i still remember it's still that you know subtle first of all they call them grits for a reason and if they're not thank you if they're not cooked properly (laughs) they're gonna you're gonna taste like you're you know it's gritty yeah you know, they're, they're going to, it's, you know, if you've ever like taken salad out of the garden, not washed properly, you're like, ah, dirt. <laughs> um, but no, it's a really, um, 
I think the other great thing about Paul Perdome, at least for me, is that the dishes that he served are true American originals. And what I mean by that, it's like jazz. It is an amalgamation of a bunch of different people's cuisine, primarily from a certain region with an influence from a set, you know, uh, dominated by influence from a particular, um, um, you know, culture. And in this case, uh, Creole cuisine, but also backed by French. So it's, it's this interesting melange of, uh, uh, of cuisines and you just like you can taste i don't know i feel like i can taste history when i'm eating that stuff and just you know these uh, food was a celebration right it had been a celebration for humans for a long time and you definitely see this when you go to um uh, when you go to these types of restaurants and you know paul prudhomme was definitely projecting that you know was projecting a lot of uh of that sort of um I don't want to say the word, you know, was projecting sort of that influence in, in when he talked at, and when you read his books. Well, if you're, I mean, if you're a seafood lover, I mean, if you like, you know, food from the sea, so to speak, you go to New Orleans, you're just, you're just in heaven. Right. I mean, you, you've got oysters, <laughs> you've just, got soft shell crab. Yeah. I mean, they just eat what they eat, what, you know, so look. It's in a it's in a it's in a swamp, right? I mean, it's in this marshland, which is teeming with all kinds of uh, um, seafood. Not to mention all kinds of animals, and they eat all this stuff. By the way, um, yep, sure you know they don't. It, there's also an ethic of not wasting, and and sort of you know taking taking what's there to eat, and you know it it and they also like it to taste good. So you know. It's uh, I don't know. It it it's it's sad that he passed. I mean, you, I, at the same time, he was seventy five. Um, he was seventy five. He lived a good life. It was kind of sad towards the end as he got older. Sure. Um, you knew because he was a, he was a he was a, a rather large man. He was always he was a man of substance. Yes. He and you know what they say: you never trust a skinny cook. So you definitely would trust Paul. <laughs> yes, you would. And he had that. You know, he was always. You know. Anytime you saw him, he was on, right? I mean, he was, you know, very much uh, projecting being happy and thankful for where he was. But you, you know, a guy does a fantastic job of creating a dish. I, I think one of his signature dishes, also, and you, I believe you mentioned it, was um, black and redfish. And I remember that craze because it just swept everywhere. Yeah. Everyone was doing. Everybody had a cast iron skillet and was. Sprinkling blackening seasoning and you know trying yeah. to recreate that and it actually isn't hard to do and it it comes it can come well, I mean you can overdo it but it, it that's it's not hard to do but I just think it's I think it's interesting that at one point it mentions in the article that it be, redfish became so popular that they had to temporarily ban fishing for it <laughs> because they couldn't they were wiping out the species. Well, so, when I was uh, in Louisiana, I mean it was all about blackened catfish. Yeah. I mean, yeah, redfish was nice, but you know where I was, we we had access to go catfishing, and you know I remember going to a friend of mine's house who was actually from Louisiana, and you know going to his grandpa's, and we were catfishing all night, and you know grandpa made us um, you know catfish fillets for breakfast, you know out of his cast iron skillet after going you know to his house in in his p row. <laughs> Well, that that cast iron skillet, I think we've talked about this before, maybe not on the podcast, but it's probably for me one of the most important 
cooking utensils in my arsenal, and I'm I'm uh, very um, I'm, I'm very uh, particular about how it's treated. <laughs> my wife and I are always like, hey, "What are you doing with that pan? Get away! You, Don't you, put soap in there." What are you putting soap in that thing for? <laughs> Don't touch this pan, please. Just leave it be. I'll take care of it. Yeah, I got it. I got this. It's the original nonstick cookware. (laughs) So. Yeah. I mean, it's, anyway, I can wax poetically about cast iron skillets, which is sad in one way and delightful in another. Well, um, we hope that Paul's going to that great kitchen, wherever it is for him, that great kitchen up in the sky. That's so true. uh, All the best to his family. Yeah. Um, Uh. Where we headed? Uh, where we headed to, man? Um, you want to talk a little Bordeaux? Yes. So last week we had talked about how um, there had been a report in Bordeaux where the children from uh, at Preniac is that the name of the? Uh, yeah, it's somewhere uh, in uh, Borg in, in Bordeaux, Cote de Borg Vineyards, B O U R G. And the children of this village have an um, an exceptionally high rate of cancers, and they think it. I believe that the report said there's a link between the pesticides that are used, and uh, um, don't quote me on that, by the way. Um, pesticides used in and around the the vineyards there, so that you know instead of not doing anything, these folks are taking action. Um, one of the things they're doing is trying to put hedgerows in between the vineyards to try to, you know, cut down on the the um, uh, the spray that happens. Pesticide drift. That was a drift is the word I was looking for. Yeah. Well, you know, it's a it's just a pretty short article. Yeah. Possible, and, and they say possible link to child child illnesses. And anyway, look, pesticides are chemicals that you know kill things, and you know maybe they do have a really negative effect on the human body. So. Things that you can do to cut down on uh, pesticide drift or overspray, all good things to do in my mind. Yeah, well, what they said was, I mean, this is all a result of, you know, they found some problems with with kids having um, increased uh, uh, cancer. But I believe there was a vineyardist that was spraying and coincidentally, you know, directly after they did their application, you know, a significant number of children and teachers, you know, had headaches and nausea, you know, you know, right after they sprayed their vines. So, I mean, coincidence, I think not. So <laughs> this is, they, farmers have to do things to protect their crops and to make them grow. And this is really all about the farming community getting along with the people that live in or around the farming community. And uh, it looks like they're taking the right steps um, to do it. But, I mean, you really have to be, you know, there's a reason why when you see guys on tractors going through a vineyard and spraying, there's a reason why they have a full body suit on. And it's, you know, it's so that they can spray another day, so to speak. And, uh, you know, it's no small thing. You know, you want to be careful when you're out there spraying things that can kill just about anything that they touch. Um you want to be careful that this not drift into other places. Well, I mean, the real answer to all this is like, you know, stop spraying. That is the answer. <sighs> yeah. Um, but I, you know, there's a lot of, uh, one, it's controversial in terms of, you know, 
uh, from a science perspective. Um, second of all, you know, I don't, I mean, li- you know, making your living at the vestiges of the weather is pretty rough. Yeah, we've, we've uh, broached this subject numerous times. Farming ain't easy. You know, so I don't, you know, I don't know what, you know, the alternative of not spraying isn't so great. Yeah, moldy grapes make some pretty gnarly wine. Yeah. So, yeah. That's, um, uh, yeah. And, <laughs> so, and, you know, I, I. Sorry, Bill. No, no worries. I don't know that people can, can afford to uh, not spray right now. Yeah, well, you know, everyone sprays something, and that goes from uh, just your uh, regular farmers, your sustainable farmers, your biodynamic farmers. Everyone sprays something. It's just a matter of what are they spraying. Well, look, sulfur gets used all the time, right? Yeah, exactly. I, is it a pesticide? Uh, not per se. It's definitely a chemical. Kills yep. bacteria. Um, uh, and you know, biodynamic organic wines—they are definitely spraying organic sulfur. You just have to do it. Um, so, I it, it's good these folks are, um, you know, trying to take action. It, it'll be interesting to see what happens in the future um, with all of these things. There's also, um, you know, there's also been a lot of dialogue lately around GMOs. You know, that controversy's been going on, and you know, that's a non. Um, uh, so we'll see kind of how that all plays out in the in the farming world. Do tell. Where are we headed, Bill? China. That's such a depressing uh, subject. <laughs> Bordo article. I don't have anything to say, man. It's just yeah, so I depressing. Just, it's just, uh, <laughs> yeah. It, it's, I, you know, I don't know what the answer is there. It's also, you know, it also makes you, you know, you start walking around vineyards touching stuff. <laughs> yeah, we, we live makes in an area where there's lots think. of vineyards, so it really... It really strikes close to home. Well, I mean, there is a school. There is a similar instance here, exactly where in, in, where we live. That there's an elementary school where an apple or- orchard was converted. I think two years ago or three years ago to a vineyard, and you know, a portion of that school's population's parents are pretty upset about the spraying that's happening. And this vineyard surrounds three quarters of the school. Um. And, you know, they're trying to do all the, you know, not spraying during when the kids are there. But, uh, you know, it'll, it, it, again, this brings up the whole, how do you coexist with the, um, you know, the thing that makes your livelihood. I mean, that vineyard could be a factory somewhere. You know, that happens all the time. Yeah. Well, I, you know, we kind of broached this subject before, but I do think it's interesting that it's a vineyard now. But before it was a vineyard, it was an orchard. Yep. So, you know. They were they were spraying the orchard also, so you know, unless it was a, a unless it was a, a non-working orchard, it which it may well have been. Yeah, it was a non-working. Well, so wait a minute. So it was a non-working orchard for I, I don't know how long prior to that, but it went. So that school's been there a long time, and that yep. orchard was a working orchard at one time, and was probably. You know, during the 60s or 70s where we didn't have the science or knew the science that we know now. So you can only imagine what was actually sprayed on those trees. Yeah. So anyway, it, it it's interesting. Yeah. The, the, the more we live on the earth, the more we know. And the more we know, the more we know what we don't know. <laughs> exactly. Now, is that 
is that um, I was trying to do a. Um, and that sounds like getting older. A, a Yogi Berra type of thing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if you see a fork. In Yogi Berra just passed away, so. Yeah. If you see a That's... fork in the road, take it. One of my favorite quotes. <laughs> yep, there's a fork in the road, and we're going to take it. There we go. I love that. Makes tons of sense to me. Incredible man. Good stuff. Yogi Bear, don't know who he is? Look him up. (laughs) Read some of his quotes. So Uh, uh, let's let's transition here to China. Um, The French are a little bit up in arms about, and there's an awesome picture of, uh, and this is from uh, uh, Wine Spectator. There's an awesome picture, too, in The Spectator with some Chinese, um, looks like police, destroying confiscated wine. It, it's a great photo, man. Yeah, it looks That's, like somebody had a big party. Yes. Until you find the b- bottles are not open. But uh, surprise, surprise, there's a bunch of counterfeiting going on. Uh, the French are, you know, you know, it's starting to impact them in a material way. And they're, you know, they're, um, you know, they want the, the Chinese authorities to do something about it. Pretty... Uh, I mean, when you think about probably the amount, I, I don't know if they're talking about the amount of wine, but pretty amazing statistic here. For every real bottle of French wine in China, I'm quoting from the argument, there's at least one counterfeit bottle of French wine. That's astonishing. That is just unbelievable. I mean, are, you can't be serious. How do they know that? That's a good question, but... It certainly makes an awesome headline. God, that is just amazing. So, um, well, you know, uh, China's economy is is taking a turn, and they've got some austerity measures over the past several years that they've instituted. And the French wine industry, at least on the high end, you know, they're not selling as much wine as they used to sell in China. So I could see why they would – leak out this information well, um, i mean the french the french in general are you know so french french wine consumption is down across the board in france yes that's true so they and you know it's it, it we we have increased our wine production here in the united states china is a huge market right i mean you know it's it's you know uh, an astonishing number in terms of, I mean, if you take in terms of what you can sell in China, I mean, you talk to anybody who's thinking about scaling a wine business, you know, they're definitely looking to the east. I'm you know, speaking specifically here about the United States, people looking east, that those markets are, you've got people that have a fair amount of high income earners, you know, yeah. 10 to 1, you know, for every one billionaire in the United States, there might be 10 in China. I'm That's just a kind of an equivalent scale. It's not meant to be a, a, a fact. Um, just saying there's a lot of them. And so naturally, if you, you know you're selling a $100 bottle of wine, $100 bottles of wine, you want to go sell them in China because there's a lot of people who can buy that wine. Yeah, and, and the problem is, is that the copies – are becoming increasingly difficult to tell from the real. You know, before, you know, four or five years ago, you see these ridiculous labels. Yeah, I mean, it's like, what? <laughs> and, and, you know, it's like anyone would know, come on, that's a fake. But but now, you know, that's... They just get better. Well, it's like if you've ever been to Asia and, you know, pick a, um, 
I always find it fun to go find accessories that you might like. So for my wife, you know, handbags from various designers. When you walk in and there's, I'm going to pick a brand, you know, a coach handbag that you know would sell for 200 bucks is there for 20. Yeah. Um, or a watch. You can find a nice Rolex for, you know, $20. 20 years ago, you, you could clearly tell uh, they didn't weigh as much. They're, uh, the way that the second hands moved on the watch or the, uh, the second hand moved on the watch was, uh, it, it definitely was fake. I was there a couple of years ago and got offered um, a, a copycat of every brand that you could possibly imagine. And wow, it was really, I mean, I'm a layman, obviously, but it was hard to tell. Man, the thing was weighted. It didn't have that sort of janky secondhand. I mean, I'm talking about watches. It just, I, I find these things interesting. Um, and of course, every, you know, I went to a shopping mall that was full of this stuff. I mean, Nike shoes. And I'm looking at the colors on these shoes and I'm like, uh, there's no Nike that color that I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> but man, they, they're cool looking. Um, all kinds of clothing, any piece of software you'd ever want, any package piece of software you've ever thought about purchasing in the world, every music, all, it, it was not legal. And that's money out of people, that's money out of the content producer's pot, um, you know, content producer or the manufacturer, you know, creator's pocket. You know, people are just blatantly ripping them off. Yeah. I, I don't know what they're going to do about it, though. I don't know what they're going to do about counterfeiting either. I you mean, know, the wine stuff, too, I mean, they're talking about converted chicken farms being used to, um, you know, counterfeit these wines. Wow. I do not want to drink chicken farm counterfeit wine. <laughs> well, I, I think what's happening is abandoned chicken is, farms it, converted to illicit bottling lines. Oi. Yeah. Scary. Anyway, I stepped on you. Sorry. Well, that's okay. Just, I'm just like, the, ah. I, I, I know that the the, um, the Chinese legislators are, are pretty uh, they're pretty tweaked about this because this wasn't put out the right way. It was apparently it was leaked, you know, and then it just made it to the newspapers and with this pretty damning picture, as you say. Um, I think all of this is going to work out as China is starting to actually make some pretty decent wine. So um, not only are they imitating, you know, or, or, or making counterfeit wine, they're starting to make better and better wine. So, you know, this is all going to work out over the years, one way or the other. But uh, have you ever had any Chinese wine? Yeah, I think we had one maybe a couple years ago. I think we had one. I can't remember what it was called, but it was awful. It was, <laughs> it was, it was sink material. Okay. It was down the drain. I was like, "What? What varietal was it?" I I can't remember. I'd have to I'd have to go back to my tasting notes. But but it was it was just awful. It was awful, man. It's not often I'll pour something down the drain, but you know, yeah. Usually I'm, I'm pretty life's too I, short to drink really bad stuff anyway. So yeah, there you go. So uh, we got uh, well, we can continue on the malfeasance in the wine business. You know, from counterfeiting in China. Um, right down to high-end retailers not delivering wine. Yeah, uh, for for everyone, I will just do a real quick brief thing. What happens with uh, with high-end wine? Like, say you're going to buy some uh, 
some Bordeaux or some some high end Burgundy. Typically, uh, a retailer or wholesaler who offers what's called a future, and they'll put out the price for the consumer to buy. And if in return for buying that wine at that time, which you will be receiving two, maybe three years later, in return for buying it, you get a break, a supposed break on what the price will be when it actually hits the market. So this is not unusual for people that are pretty serious collectors to plunk down some serious cash for some, you know, some pretty hard to find and hard to get wines. Uh, we got a retailer in uh, Berkeley that is being sued for allegedly not delivering on said product. And um, he's being sued for they're being sued for quite a quite a large amount of money. Uh, one woman, she's a chiropractor. She's suing them for two hundred and what um, two hundred fourteen thousand dollars. And uh, another guy is suing them for holy smokes. Almost Let's a, see what does it say a, here. Yeah, almost close a, to a, close million to a million nine hundred eighty one thousand. Yeah, so for for um, fifteen hundred bottles, sixteen hundred bottles of wine. So the good thing the for the retailer in this case is the retailer gets to sell a wine that they don't have possession of, but they get the use of the money for a certain amount of time, i.e. they get the float. So they get to purchase, they get to, you know, it depends on when they're going to, you don't even know if they've made their purchase. So theoretically, and I'm not saying this is what happened in this case, but theoretically you could go out and you could sell the wine that you don't have in your possession to customers, get the money, put it in the bank, use those resources and then at a later time, make the purchase for those futures. Or you could, if you had it locked up, you could make the purchases maybe like a year later, maybe a year and a half later. So what it does is it gives you a little, you've got a margin, you've got margin, and you've got a little float with this money, which is, could be pretty nice, you know, because you could use the money for other things. But what's happened is for whatever reason, these two people, have said that uh, they paid their money and they waited for their wine to arrive and it's come in in dribs and drabs, but they haven't gotten their wine. So they finally had no choice but to go to court. What are your thoughts, Bill? Uh, the counter argument from the business is, is that there's just misunderstanding between uh, the business and the customer. Mm -hmm. And there are, um, there's a quote from a, um, a retailer in, in New York who's a Bordeaux future you know, does this market or Bordeaux futures? You know, they're basically saying, you know, wines purchased uh, a 14 future that will be delivered in 2017. It's a traditional gap. Yeah. Um, um, but there, you know, there are instances in uh, with the Premier Crew folks that, you know, they're the traditional gap, the three year gap. You know, something I purchased in 2010 should be delivered in 2013, and it didn't happen. Um, I and I could see where, you know, so wine allocate. You know, if you're a wine retailer or in the distribution chain, allocation plays pretty important. Um, there, you know, these are intimate businesses in that you know it could come from a small or and or a larger, very popular winery. So you know, I'm going to sell to the people I like. I have a limited allocation. Um, you know, who knows where in that distribution chain who's telling the truth. 
Um, you know, you can't see this stuff. Um, you can't, you certainly can't see how many people have laid claim to it. So there's a transparency issue here, I think, in the distribution chain that ultimately is causing the problem. Um, hmm. and you know, if I'm a, I mean, you could go back and put it on the winery and say, Hey, how many cases did you make? You can't over allocate that wine, which I'm sure happens all the time. Yeah, and that's the case. That's kind of what's happening here. In in the case of the investor overseas, he ordered some 2010 Petrus, and you know he should have had that wine by now. <laughs> in 2010, it's 2015. So yeah, and that wine sitting on someone's shelf somewhere. Yeah, so you know, that's no. I mean, that stuff's gone, right? I mean, that, yeah, he's you know, he's got a he's got a legitimate beef. You know, there's no Petrus laying around in the world. So I just, you know, I think at the end of the day, the um, you know, you ha- if you're gonna if you're gonna do anything about this problem, and from a regulation standpoint, it has to be transparency. Sort of from the, I mean, the winery is the maker of the product, so ultimately they should have to account what they have for what they have and what they're gonna sell, and they can't over allocate. Now, well, if somebody you- now if somebody in the retail business had allocation of let's just say 10 bottles to make it easy and sold 20 mm-hmm. um uh, and i hear this happen all the time it's like well i know i offered you 10 bottles of petraeus but um things got really tight and i i couldn't do that so i'm going to give you 10 bottles of this other wine that's just as good you yeah, know, that, yeah that, that can lot. happen that happens I, a lot i think a lot of times people want their money back and this is this is yeah, kind of what's going that, on here. And I think ultimately that's so you know, but but again, I think if you're gonna if you're gonna sell a future, um, you know, I mean, this problem has to happen in the commodities market, right? Yeah. You know, you're buying a future, and it'd be interesting seeing what they do. I know that, um, you know, I know airlines, for example, um, well. I know Southwest does this for sure, but they buy, they're constantly buying aviation fuel from, on a, and they're doing it, um, they're leveraging futures to do it. One of the reasons, if you remember back, I don't know, it was about two years ago where airline prices skyrocketed because fuel prices skyrocketed mm-hmm. and Southwest wasn't affected. The reason is, is they're constantly, they're, they're, they're basically buying aviation fuel all the time and they buy futures. So they lock in a price. Like I know I need, you know, X million gallons of aviation fuel five months from now. I'm going to buy a guaranteed future price of that fuel at this. It, it might, I know in fact, I might pay a little more for it than the current market, but I know right. that I'm, it, it's not produced yet, but I'm locking it in. And I don't know how they manage that. You know, there's got to be regulatory things that happen around that market. It'd be interesting to see if that's at play in the wine business and maybe that's a solution. Well, I think what's happening with Premier, with this company, is they uh, they're a victim of the market, and you know the the campaign for uh, Bordeaux futures for the past several years has been awful. You know, I mean, there's no other way to put it. It's just really been lackluster, and when you're dependent on that float. I mean, they haven't been get, selling. They haven't been selling. No, it's it's it, they have not been selling very well at all. So so that's kind of what's going on. Um, you know, they they're kind of there's a downturn 
in the in the futures market. And they're kind of being hammered on that end also because they're not getting their float from uh, the cash that's paid up front for the wines. And uh, that's impacting their business. They're obviously short on cash. If they had a if they had a customer that was, you know, disappointed to the point where the customer was going to court, you know, it seems to be you either pr- produce the wine or produce the money, you know, either or, you know, it's, it's only fair. They gave you the money up front. So, uh, that's that, but, uh, that, that's a pretty big player. They used to be in Emeryville and I know they moved to a new spot in Berkeley. I haven't been to the new store, but I've driven by and looked in and it's pretty fancy. <laughs> it's a real fancy yeah, showroom. It's a nice, I mean, well, I mean, you know, this is all, it's a luxury good. You want to yeah. have the luxury experience. I mean, it, it, um, you know, that's a, just to riff on that for a minute. That's one nice thing about wine is you can create yourself a little sense of luxury by buying a, a little bit more expensive bottle of wine. Yeah. You know, it's it's not um, – and the whole sort of premise around it is there. It's some of where the snobbery comes from as well. Yeah, a little bit, yeah. But it, it, nonetheless, I mean you can – We're here to break that down though. I, I told, well, I, break it down in terms of you don't need the snobbery to have some luxury. Yep. That's all. All right. Um, so we're uh, <laughs> we've been prattling on here for a while. <laughs> we're approaching an hour. Oh um, boy, man. Maybe we should we should shut no, it down. No, no, I'm know, sorry. I don't know if we have time for the donkey and go. No, we do. We do. I'm, I I stand corrected. I'm looking at the wrong timer. Um, we're good. Let's uh, let's talk about our lieutenant governor. Oh, okay. All right. Um, our, our, our next, uh, <laughs> governor to be is what I like to say, man. He's, he's a shoe in. Uh, nothing's a sure thing, man. <laughs> nothing's a sure thing. He's, he's laying the groundwork. <laughs> he has been for quite a while. Uh, I think he has been for quite a while. He's, he's got some heavy hitters in his corner. He's got getting money in his corner. <laughs> I mean, his, uh, you know, his business partner, Plump Jacks, Gordon Getty. Yes, which I be- and I believe all of those gentlemen went to Santa Clara University. Oh, did they? I think so. I think I'm or USF. Um, yeah, I, I have a, peer, a friend of mine that that went there and has like encountered these guys back when he was in school getting his undergrad. Yeah. But um, well, well, Gavin has uh, he has the gift of gab, and he is definitely. This is a, a really interesting article. Actually, it's a three-part article, and um, it's uh, Steve Heimoff uh, interviews him, and all three are interesting. The third is really interesting, but this the second one is about uh, homelessness and uh, the gig economy, and we touched on it a little bit before we even started talking. We're talking about the, the homelessness situation. I, I believe you're referencing, say, San Francisco in general. Well, it's just housing in San Francisco, right? I mean, you can't. You know, I have friends of mine that are renting one bedroom, like 800 square foot apartments for more than I make my house payment for. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not living in a shack by any stretch of the imagination. And, I mean, he's talking about, so when he was mayor of California, or mayor, he was mayor of California, he was mayor of San Francisco, he, um, he studied the homeless problem. And New York at the time had a pretty successful – they were successful in making the homeless – I mean, you can argue how successful the program is. There weren't a lot of people sleeping on the streets in San Francisco, and there wasn't a lot of aggressive panhandling in New York at the time. 
and San Francisco is really there's a lot of um, there's a lot of press articles about there's just a lot of articles about people coming to San Francisco and experience one very visible homeless problem two aggressive panhandling three no place for these no programs for these people to go to uh, Gavin you know implemented a a program to try to tackle it so he talks about whether or not that was successful and then they really talk it really comes down to housing affordability and supply he, and demand he is um, there was a moratorium placed on building in a in a, a neighborhood in San Francisco called the Mission and you know I I like Gavin sort of pointing out the fact that well look if you you know it doesn't make any sense that if you stop building places for people to live things are not going to get cheaper <laughs> yeah it's it's uh oxymoronic man right <laughs> and he I, and it the wine conversation is interesting, sort of woven into this you know they start talking about uh, the percentage of alcohol in wine and yeah he's it, got some great quotes in here it's just been dialing it up but he's very clear about what 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 his winery is trying to do, Plump Jack, and why it why it costs uh, what it costs and why it's priced the way it's priced. Now I, it's been a while since I read the article, but I I re, he was asked about is California wine uh, overpriced, and you know in a word he said yes. <laughs> so many words he said yes, but he says hey, you know. He, he actually referenced in the article that they actually had to raise their price to keep up with the neighbors. <laughs> Did you, do you see that? Do you remember that in there? Totally. Well, he is. <laughs> He's like screaming eagles across the street. It's like, what am I going to do, man? I got to raise yeah. my price. You know, it's, and, su- it's supply and demand. It's some, at some, you know, operating at some level. It's, uh, it's interesting that they're selling out every year. And um, we're talking about uh, Plump Jack wines, by the way, which are fantastic wines. And uh, he also has uh, got he has a whole bunch of businesses. But in the valley there, um, Plump Jack and Cade, which is on Howell Mountain. And um, I mean, he's in a good neighborhood there. What what Groth is around right there. Uh, It's Opus One. Yeah, I I mean, it's prime real estate. Yeah, that's you know, like, and, uh, and these folks are, you know, I mean, let's be clear. I mean, Plump Jack was started what in the nineties, maybe. I mean, they're new to all of this, or maybe eighties, but they're, you know, they're um, newer rather than older. I mean, they're obviously not the newest folks, but we had talked about people entering the wine business and going to get experts to help them to do that. I think they followed that model. Yeah, well, they had they had some rock star winemakers there. Uh, he talked. I love the part where they talk about the higher alcohol. And he says, he says, yeah, people like unctuous, fat, and sweet. So yeah. that's what that's what we're that's making. What we're making. I mean, <laughs> if you, he, he, I, one. So one. I think one really interesting thing about Gavin is is he's a fairly liberal politician, but at the same time, he has a very interesting. You know, he's got that business ethic. Yeah. You know, the market is the market. I don't. I, you can't control that thing, and he t- and he references having macro control over the economy. We don't have that, so you know uh, you're not going to be able to do anything other than try to figure out how to work with the market as it you know as it exists in the state that it exists and what controls are in place. It's a calculus, and 
you know, I think it comes down to the simplicity that he said. My neighbors all are selling their bottles for $100, you know, $100 plus. Why shouldn't I? I can yeah. get it. And I like I'm the, making a good product. It's not, I mean, yeah. it's not, it's not like I'm getting crap for a hundred bucks. <laughs> I like how he sees a problem and he deals with it. I mean, the whole idea of how he actually got into politics is very interesting. You know, he was, he was out of school and he was running a little wine store, uh, down in the marina and he was putting it together, getting it, trying to get it going. And one day a city official walked in and asked them, uh, where their floor sink was, you know, cause you know, you're going to have cheese or something. I guess they had wine, but they also had some cheese. So if you're going to have food, you have to have a sink, you have to have a floor sink. And he's like, floor sink, it's carpet. About? It's carpet in here. <laughs> Why would I have a floor about? sink? <laughs> and the, and the guy's like, hey, you got to have a floor sink. It says right here, you know, section 253B7. So uh, that's how he got into politics. He's like, how ridiculous is this? <laughs> so he, he just decided that he was going to, uh, you know, you know, join the fray, so to speak. So, But that's how he is with a lot of stuff. But he has all these businesses going and he really doesn't, you know, there's no way that you could run all of these things and be involved with them. He probably just gets people to send stuff to him and he signs a few papers here and uh, – and, uh, but, but, um, and he says that he says that, um, he's, and he, you're, I mean, to your point, you know, the, this particular post goes on, as you mentioned, to talk about the sharing, what they call the sharing economy. You can also call it the gig economy. Yes. So those are people who are making a living doing a bunch of different jobs. It might be an Uber driver during the day might deliver packages for Postmates at night or in the evening or some other food company. Uh, you know, maybe you work in a coffee shop or some other retail. So you don't have one job. You have a variety of, of smaller jobs. Now, I think there are certain segments of population that might work pretty well. It, it definitely doesn't work in places uh, in the densely urban population centers in California because the housing is so expensive. So, you know, there's some weird weirdness happening here. But he, you know, he gets down to it in, uh, in, in at the end of this post where he, you know, he's talking about, you know, why, why are liberals so upset at pl- things like Uber? And he's saying that, you know, we're still stuck on this notion that you go to work for a company and, you know, you put in your 20 years and you have some type or the government and you have some type of security. Yeah. You know, and that it, it's hard to do that. Uh, it's getting less, less, less. Uh, that's becoming less true. That whole model of go in, do your twenty-five years, get your four hundred one k, retire, go to the Bahamas or do whatever. Travel, do you know, yeah. live your life like you want to live. I mean, there. So there's a bunch of counter arguments to the benefits of the sharing economy, and that's one of them. I don't have to wait twenty-five years to go do what I really want to do. I can make money and pay for myself or get close to paying for myself and do my craft or whatever whatever it is my passion might be. Now, I think that's really great for people who are, you know, kind of from the middle class and, you know, like my – I can tell my kids that and, you know, probably make it work for them. I mean, the cold hard reality is a lot of people got to go out and work three jobs to just survive. Well, his, his best quote in this whole thing for me is – and I'll read it. It's great. It says uh, – you either adapt to this environment in real time or you're going to get run over literally and figuratively. 
And I get it. I'm not a techno utopian, but the fact is we have to wake up to this reality. Airbnb is the largest accommodation company in the world, and it has no real estate. Yeah, and and think about that. That company did not exist five years ago, six years ago. Didn't it's crazy. exist. Did not exist. Wasn't a, possible ten years ago. It's unbelievable. Yeah, and and he kind of broaches that talking about how you know we're just, it's just the tip of the iceberg of how fast things are going to start moving. Right. So now the other thing to pay attention to here are some of the Nordic economies. The Dutch have some of the highest satisfaction rates or happiness rates. There's actually a measure of this stuff from an academic standpoint. Mm-hmm. They also have one of the, the – I believe Denmark, um, either Denmark or Norway, has the highest labor participation rate in the world. 92% of the population are in the workforce. They work every week. But – most folks in Denmark don't work a lot. They also pay a substantial amount of their income into the government. And they basically have built a system where, you know, kind of half the population takes care of and provides programs for the other half. You know, be it a, you know, a probation officer, a social worker, um, a home health care person, um, a, a teacher. So I, you know, there might be, and I'm not sort of advocating more government here. I'm just, I I think it's interesting that there are models that we might be able to look at to figure out how we might adapt in real time. And it's good that there's a politician out there like Gavin Newsom who's thinking about that, in my opinion. Yeah, he he's uh, he thinks outside of the box, that's for sure. Yeah, and he he, and he's an equal opportunity piss off guy. He really makes the liberals mad. (laughs) He really makes the conservatives mad. The the establishments on either side are not happy with him. (laughs) <laughs> and more importantly, he takes action, and he does yeah. get stuff. He does get stuff done. He has gotten stuff done. Yeah. Well, we should wrap it up, Bill. I just wanted to let you know. I oh, don't know. let's talk. Well, we got just what? Just one more thing. We've got some more malf. Since this is a malfeasance edition. Oh my gosh! What more could there be? Let's talk about donkey and goat. Oh boy! Oh, another case of uh, a very small time. Uh, excellent uh, boutique producer of wine, uh, you know, one two two person operation, uh, expanding, getting a little notoriety, making some good wines, and um, suffering some growing pains. I, I guess is what I would say. Right. That correct uh, on that? Yep. Growing pains in that they have to trust some uh, employees, uh, some other employees, and. Uh, you know, because the business has gotten too big, they got to trust some other people to come in and work with them. In this case, it turns out uh, several of their employees that they had have been charged with um, dealing with some of their stolen property that uh, came from them. Yeah, they took wine out of the winery and then they resold it. Now, yeah. the complaint so, the, in the complaint against these folks, the people that actually took it claim that they one of them claims they weren't paid. When they were should yes. have been paid, so I, you know, this is just a classic case of a small, a small business. I mean, this happens all the time. You know, small business started by, you know, I believe by a husband and wife worked the business to the point where they became successful and needed to start hiring some people. Um, you know, they 
you know, maybe people came to work, you know, with the promise of opportunity. You're in a small, intimate setting. People kind of become family, but there's still sort of the business owner and the employee relationship happening that gets diluted. And the next thing you know, the employees are like, wait a minute. I'm no different than, uh, you know, why am I, you know, I'm, however you want to quantify it, I'm deserved more than I'm getting. Yeah, it's that. It's a weird thing. I mean, it's a. So I'm going to take it. Yeah, the the reasoning behind that, I I really don't quite understand it. You know, I'm I'm not being uh, taken care of the way I should be taken care of. Seems like there'd be a better way to handle that. But you could always ask for more money. <laughs> like, didn't anybody ever tell you you got to ask that you should take like ask first? So this is really interesting. It's got a, like a little small town feel to it because. Uh, you know, they actually had the Ber- the Berkeley police, uh, the Berkeley police were doing a stakeout and they observed the pair loading three cases of wine from uh, their uh, their garage at their home into a car. And then they drove off with the wine and were arrested a few blocks away. So, you know, they kind of like actually <laughs> actually There's like real police investigative work going on here. You don't hear about that, man. Very rarely. Very rarely. <laughs> but that's awesome. I mean, you know. I, I I mean, at the end of the day, that's someone's product, and you're stealing it. Yeah, yeah. You know, and your so, I, I think your defense of I was owed more money. Well, that's a separate issue. <laughs> Unfortunately, think, that's a separate issue. I think the timing is interesting because this happened. Apparently, uh, they were arrested back in December. I mean, if I'm not mistaken, isn't it October? Yep. <laughs> How does this just now December. show up? So, I mean, it was three employees, and uh, they all no longer work there, obviously. So um, I I just – the one guy's uh, complaint for why he was fired was he he was fired after he objected to unlawful surveillance. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, what? It is Berkeley. (laughs) It is Berkeley. Okay, you put some cameras up. I'm, that's not minute. right. It, yeah, in your business, <laughs> not your not your bath, no, not the bathroom in the business. I'm sure. That's crazy. Yeah, whatever. It's so uh, yeah, that's some pretty crazy stuff. Hey, uh, I don't know if you know it or not, but uh, I forgot to mention this earlier. But uh, Judy Jordan has uh, she's not moving out of California. No, she <laughs> oh, she just bought some Coletto land. Oh man, and she. She went from what she sell uh, her. She sold three hundred plus acres in Sonoma County. Now she's over in Napa. She bought six hundred and two acres. You know, I, she uh, be interesting to see what what they do. Well, a lot of it is. I don't know how much of it is planted. Um, it's uh, well, no, I do sixty one acres of vineyards. So that's a lot of land. <laughs> so. I don't know if they're going to develop all of that or not, but it's in a nice area at Sage Canyon Road um, in Napa County. Yeah, it'll it'll be interesting to see what happens. So should we wrap it up, Bill? Let's wrap it. Uh, Last question for you. Uh, Drink anything last week people should know about? Uh, Yeah, I did. I I drank a a couple of uh, nice bottles. Um, One was a Suave. Made by Monte Tondo. It's, um, it's a winery in uh, Veneto. It's a 2012 vintage. I don't think – I think you'll have to get their 2013 now. But uh, really beautiful bottle of wine. Um, 
just try it. It's uh, you get the peach, uh, the white flowers in the nose. Um, Price low point. in alcohol, about twelve and a half percent alcohol. Price point. Price point of uh, eighteen bucks. Eighteen bucks a bottle, I think, is what I paid for it. And uh, people can find it uh, readily on the East Coast. A little harder here on the West Coast. Um, there's a few distributors. It's distributed by uh, a company out of uh, Seattle, so it should be pretty easy to find. And then for a red, uh, run to the store and get the 2012 Colomé Estate Malbec. Oh, yeah? That is a fantastic bottle. Just go ahead, grill yourself a steak, open this up, have a little taste while you're cooking, grill yourself a steak. And uh, pour yourself a nice glass of this, and you'll be in heaven. Where can I – where uh, – Colomay is a fairly large producer, right? Yeah, you could find it just about it. You could go online, and it's you could find it everywhere. And it, that's a that's the current vintage that's out right now. BevMo, maybe? Ooh, I don't know about BevMo. All right. no I haven't been to BevMo in a long time. I just – it's a retailer that's around. Right? Yeah, yeah. You, you might if, – if they don't have it, they'll certainly order it for you. Probably. If you want to know about Suave, um, we did a podcast in June of 14 called 10 Suaves You Should Try. It's a good uh, – I knew nothing about it, that that uh, that wine, that varietal, and learned a lot by doing this podcast. So that information's in there, and there's some recommendations on what to, you know, what to try and, you know, things to have with it. Uh, it's pretty in-depth. I think we did a podcast and we pimped the Colomay Malbec too, but I don't. I know it wasn't the 2012, but can't remember which one it was. But uh, Malbec is it's it's a delicious wine. Little boysenberry. Yeah, and it's also a wine that um, it's epi, It was episode. Oh no, I was going to say episode wine, but it it wasn't. So that's uh, what what uh, we got a big game tonight, a big football game tonight with the 49ers to see if Colin Kaepernick can wake up out of his coma. He's Boy, on, man, it's, if he is just taking it. He's really taking it the on chin, man. Is tonight, just hammering he's, him about you know he's crumbling, and there I've read like three scathing op-ed posts on the guy. Wow. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's uh, it's uh, it's time to put up today. And it's Sunday night football, man. Everybody's going to be watching, so I'm really pulling for him. I want him to to, to come through and and uh, and and shut everybody down. Yeah, so. you know it's rough to have that. Uh, we'll see. I mean, the mark of a champion is to rise rise above all the pressure. Yep. yep. And the op-ed posts have basically been saying that, and it's certainly certainly one of the things that's fun to watch about football or pay attention to. I guess any sport, any professional sport, is this drama happens where somebody initially starts off really great in terms of what they're doing, clearly has superstar potential because they're appearing like other superstars. Yep. Kaepernick was smart, I think, in capitalizing that from a business standpoint, getting an awesome con- – they get a ridiculous contract in terms of you know fine, uh, monetary value, but – also has performance kind of performance clauses in it, so it's really interesting. And there's a ton of pressure on the guy, you know. Yeah. I mean, just and he's he's 
pretty new. What is this like? A, what I can't remember what season. It's like fourth or fifth year. I okay. can't remember. Yeah, I but mean, he's, he's he's new. Yeah, that performance laden contract. You know, it's a good thing if if uh, things are going well. If things aren't going so well. <sighs> oh, you know what? It's a contract you want to take in life. That's so good. No, that's the contract you want to take in life. Well, I'm accustomed to it, you know, in the business I'm in. That's... Yeah, you bet. You perform, <laughs> you perform, you do well. And it's, you know what's great about that? You know when it's time to move. Yeah, yeah. I always tell people, you know, there's no such thing as an overpaid salesman. Nope. <laughs> so, all right, Bill. Well, uh, let's close it out for the, for the fifth yeah, and final time. How does everybody find us? Uh, Vino101.net is our blog. Uh, Vino101.net on Twitter. We've also got a Facebook page. I think you can just type in Vino101. You can also send us email, uh, info at Vino101. Tell your friends to like us on Facebook. It doesn't cost them anything. They'll see some wine news, might learn something. That's the worst case that's going to happen. Tell a friend, man. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers, bro.